Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. 
Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi, I'm Mark Bittman, and welcome to Food. Today, my guest is going to be Adrian Miller, author of Black Smoke. We're going to discuss the United States of barbecue. Adrian will discuss the true definition of barbecue, its roots, its evolution, and his journey through food, and especially African-American food. Uh, we'll also take some of your questions. We'll have some recipes courtesy of Black Smoke and some thoughts on other matters. So welcome, and here we go. This recipe for mashed potato salad comes to us from Black Smoke, but Adrian borrowed it from Rob Walsh's Legends of Texas Barbecue Cookbook. And Rob, in turn, credits the cooks at New Zion Missionary Baptist Church. So a lot of people get credit for this wonderful, simple mashed potato salad recipe. To make it, take about a pound and a half of russet potatoes, peel them, cut them into chunks. Boil them in salted water until they're tender, about 15 minutes, really tender. Then drain. Then you just mash them in a bowl with a half a cup of mayonnaise, three teaspoons of yellow mustard, two green onions, chopped, one tablespoon of pickle relish, four teaspoons of pickle juice, four teaspoons of hot pepper sauce, or to taste, and salt to taste. This is best served at room temperature, and using an ice cream scoop is traditional. Another recipe from Black Smoke that I really like is Jason Poe's smoked cabbage. Jason is a barbecue chef in Fort Lee, Virginia, and he let Adrian use this recipe for the book. You'll need a smoker for this recipe, and at the end of the podcast, I'll tell you how to rig one up. But otherwise, it's pretty simple. Take a head of cabbage, cut it in half, and season the cut sides with salt and pepper. Wrap it in foil and smoke it at about 275 degrees for about two hours or until it's really soft. While that's happening, take a cup and a half of butter, that's three sticks, and melt it in a pan with a quarter cup garlic salt and a quarter cup sugar. When the cabbage is done, cut it into serving pieces, douse it with the butter, and serve. Coming up next, my interview with Adrian Miller. Hi, everyone. I have with me today Adrian Miller, who lives in Denver, where he is a James Beard Award-winning food writer, an attorney, and a certified barbecue judge. Mr. Miller served as a special assistant to President Clinton with his initiative for One America, which was the first freestanding office in the White House to address issues of racial, religious, and ethnic reconciliation. Mr. Miller went on to serve as a senior policy analyst for Colorado Governor Bill Ritter Jr. 
And from 2004 to 2010, he served on the board for the Southern Foodways Alliance. He's currently the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches and is both the first African-American and the first layperson to hold that position. His first book was Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine. It won a James Beard Award. His second book was called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, The Story of the African Americans Who Have Fed Our First Families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. It was published on President's Day in 2017. Adrian's third book, Black Smoke, African Americans and the United States of Barbecue, is being published this spring. Welcome, Adrian Miller. I guess my first question is, it says here, will be published spring 2021. Is it out? It is out. It, it was published on April 27th. Well, congratulations. That's great. I don't know where you grew up, and I don't know how you got into food and how you transitioned from law to food. So maybe that story would be a great place to start. Oh, it's a wonderful story. So first of all, this is going to lose me street cred on the subject of Southern food, <laughs> soul food, and barbecue. But I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Right. All right, wait, wait, let me win you back. Let me win you back. My parents are from the South. My mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad's from Helena, Arkansas. So these are the food traditions, um, you know, I grew up with. So yeah, born and raised in Denver, and then um, went to Stanford undergrad, Georgetown Law School, practiced law for a few years, hated it. Got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office. So uh, that, I was going to start a soul food restaurant, but then a friend from Georgetown Law School connected me with the White House. That's So that's how I pivoted to politics. And then how I pivoted to food writing is the short answer is unemployment. So after my stint in the Clinton White House, at that time in my life, I wanted to be the senator from Colorado at some point. It's a really good idea. Yeah. So I was trying to get back to Colorado and start my uh, political career. But the job market was really slow. I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. In the depth of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and I found a book by John Edgerton called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to Black achievement in American cookery had yet to be written. And that's what really launched me on the journey. So when I was coming up writing about food, you know, barbecue was like really white. The whole thing kind of reminded me of the divide between bluegrass and blues music. And it was like white people had somehow taken over barbecue. And even then, even I knew that there was something weird going on there. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. So for me, I, I got to tell you, I didn't really pay much attention. I mean, my deepest thinking about barbecue before the early 2000s was, mm, this tastes really good. As I was writing the book on soul food, I was like, oh, I, I need to learn more about barbecue because so many soul food restaurants have a barbecue option on the menu, even if it's quote unquote baked. And then so many black owned barbecue joints have soul food side dishes. So I thought I just need to learn more about this. And so I came across the Southern Foodways Alliance, uh, went on a barbecue field trip to Central Texas for three days. It was three of the happiest days of my life because I was just eating barbecue. And uh, the Southern Foodways Alliance does a great job of putting things in social context. So there were lectures about the history. And then I started to think more deeply about it. But then I had experienced some trauma because I turned on uh, the Food Network and they were launching kind of this barbecue. Pro this was a few years later, some a major initiative on barbecue programming. You know, they were establishing themselves as the go-to source for that. So I was watching Paula Dean's Southern Barbecue hour-long special. And, you know, I just thought, okay, this is going to be a survey and I'll just find out who the leading figures are. And my mouth was agape when the credits were rolling because, you know, no African-Americans had been really featured. 
So the first question I asked myself is, how does this happen? And then the second one is like, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue sponsored by Alabama White Sauce. And, you know, I just didn't pay close attention to the promotion. But then I just started looking around and, you know, it wasn't just that show. It was other shows on the Food Network. It was print, books. I mean, everywhere, the authorities, the people that had been conferred authority in barbecue were white men. And that just didn't square with my experience because barbecue is a huge part of African-American culture. And I know that African-Americans have contributed significantly to this, you know, very popular food. So I wanted to just start trying to reestablish African-Americans in the barbecue narrative. So when you went to Central Texas, you went to Lockhart, I assume, which is like five great white barbecue joints, right? Yes, yes. But the cool thing is that the Southern Foodways Alliance made sure that we got exposed to some other places. So we went to Luling and some other places around there. And so um, Sam's Barbecue, which I think is still there, even though they've been offered $5 million for their property, just to sign in as gentrification. Uh, there was an arts rib house. There was another place called Crosstown Barbecue. And unfortunately, that the guy running that has died. And then we got exposed to like Gonzalez Meat Market and some other places. So we got a, a taste of kind of these other traditions that were coexisting with the, with the well-known uh, white-owned joints that people flock to. Yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, it's kind of what I was saying, and I guess I just wasn't analytical enough to kind of dig deep enough at the time. I mean, I I know that the the first few times friends took me for barbecue, but I remember an old African-American-owned joint in South Philly called Lester and BB's, and was a really popular, sort of crazy place. They were old at the time, and this was the 70s. So I remember being really uh, sort of blown away by the greens, because that's what you hadn't, you know, as I grew up in New York and there was all kinds of food and there was barbecue. I'm sure it wasn't very good. I don't remember. But no one was serving like greens. You know, it was like ribs and French fries, you know, that kind of thing. So the greens were really what impressed me. And then the other interesting experience I had was some people in Danville, Illinois, took me, you know, to the other side of the tracks, air quotes around that. And this elderly black woman was cooking in her kitchen for like whoever came into the house. And that was 76. I would say one of the, at that point, one of the three great eating experiences of my life, but even now one of the most memorable. But again, then, you know, Southern food becomes popular, barbecue becomes popular, and suddenly it's like white people getting all the credit for it, white people up front. Yeah, you know, and you see you see this pattern over and over again. And, you know, what, what my thought is, is just that the people who decide what stories get told usually are white people. And if they don't value diversity and they're just talking to their other white friends for ideas for stories, that's how we get create this echo chamber. But here, here's the thing about barbecue. You know, for barbecue, barbecue kind of stayed out of that pattern before the 1990s. Like before the 1990s, it was it would be weird not to include an African-American in a barbecue story. And you find that the, the closer you get to the people, like the local press was much better about recognizing uh, African-Americans in their barbecue scene. It's really the national press that started to fall down on the job. But this accelerates by the time you get to the 1990s. And I, I think it's because of the rise of foodies. And uh, you know we've always had people interested in food as leisure, right? But they tended to be very wealthy. And barbecue was working class food. So you didn't, you know, there, there might be a grilling special every once in a while in gourmet or Bon Appetit, but it wasn't like a regular feature. But then when you get these foodies, right, you got middle class people with more adventuresome palates. They've got disposable income and they're asking the two questions. What's barbecue and where do I get the good stuff? 
And there was a commensurate rise in food media to cater to this group, right? And again, because those folks didn't either didn't value diversity or were not diverse themselves, just at the very time that foodies were looking for experts, person after person after person, it was put before them. You got the Bubba type, you know, the working class rural guy. You got the competition circuit guy. You got the urban hipster guy, you know, with interesting facial hair, glasses, tattoos. And then you've got the fine dining chef, right? The toke who smokes. So we're seeing different versions of these four dudes, essentially. And barbecue transitions from being like this working class, menial labor thing that's highly appreciated to all of a sudden it's a craft. It's cool. And so dudes who would go into accounting and other things, right, they're, they're getting into barbecue and they're redefining what it barbecue is. Becoming more scientific or more like, you know, you got to do it right. There's one good way to do it. Here's the right temperature. This is the right wood. This is da, 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 da. And suddenly it's like not everybody can do it because it's like too complicated. Right. You got to use Wagyu or Kobe beef. Minimal seasoning, no sauce. I mean, when, you know, when these dudes are saying no sauce, most black people I know are like, says who? Because in a lot of black joints, it's the sauce that's the calling card. Right. So what is it and how did it develop? I mean, did it develop as an African-American thing or did it develop in parallel in, in two different cultures in a way? It's definitely Southern. We know that, right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the biggest surprises of my research was how much barbecue is really Native American in origin. Because when you hear the early history of barbecue, it's hazy, right? Because we don't have really accurate reporting about what's going on. But the, the story you usually hear is Europeans show up in the Caribbean. They see indigenous people cooking in a way they really hadn't seen before. Uh, and they talk about the Tayano people, you know, cooking over a raised platform, over a slow fire. You got iguanas, fish, vegetables, all on this thing being smoked. So it wasn't really about eating that stuff right away. It was more about preservation. And then Europeans bring that to the, the North American mainland and along with their animals and with the pigs, the sheep, the goats and all that stuff. Then we start getting barbecue. And th that didn't make a lot of sense to me because the way that barbecue emerges, you know, digging in a trench, hardwood coals, butterflied animals, that was very different than at least what was reported going the Caribbean. So something else was going on. And so my argument is, is that Europeans looked at what Native Americans were doing and they were using multiple methods of smoking meat. Um, they added their quick grilling traditions. And then eventually what we understand a barbecue starts to emerge. So I, I argue that barbecue is really a hybrid between using creating an earth oven, which is a more vertical whole way of cooking and the shallow pits that they saw and maybe they had been thinking about things from the Middle East, because if you look at pit cooking from Middle Eastern cultures that, you know, you could argue that's similar to pit barbecue. And then later on, so you've got Native Americans, white indentured servants, probably as the earliest barbecue cooks before enslaved Africans start coming in large numbers. And then enslaved Africans start become barbecue's principal cooks. So again, this is not all well documented, but we know from travel diaries and other things, we get a glimpse of what was going on at that time. But then something distinct emerges by the 1700s. Something distinct, like distinctly American, distinctly North American? I, I would say distinctly Southern American. So when they talked about barbecue early, it was all it was called Virginia barbecue. And later, so the, the, this idea of digging a trench, hardwood burning coals, butterfly animals being flipped and sauced, that was Virginia barbecue as a verb, social event, you know, type way of cooking, all of that. And so the early descriptions of this, when people would take that type of cooking someplace else, like if they were in Kentucky, they would say, oh yeah, we're doing a Virginia barbecue in Kentucky. Now over time, it gets more associated with place and region, right? So it loses the Virginia 
kind of title then becomes barbecue or Southern barbecue and then Kentucky, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, what my argument is that by the time you get to the late 1700s, barbecue and blackness have been wedded because barbecue on the grandiose scale is very labor intensive. You know, somebody has to clear all that area, that brush, somebody has to chop that wood, maintain that fire, kill these animals, process them, cook them, serve the meat. And then after a barbecue, uh, black people were the entertainment because they would sing plantation, plantation melodies, spirituals, do cakewalks. So it was a black experience from beginning to end. Uh, and because it was so labor intensive, if you don't want to pay anybody for that work, the norms of the time was, okay, we're going to have enslaved African-Americans do it. I mean, my guess is that enslaved people weren't able to do this for themselves, that they were doing it for white people. Like, enslaved people couldn't own animals except for chickens, is my understanding. So they weren't cooking a whole lamb or a whole pig or anything for themselves, right? Oh, no, definitely they were. In fact, in in a lot of places, uh, enslaved people were allowed to own a variety of animals. So we know that there was husbandry. Um, by enslaved people. So pigs, cows, chickens, as you know, I think chickens were probably the most prevalent. Uh, What I didn't know either until I started doing this kind of work is how there was a schedule to slavery. So uh, the work schedule often slowed by midday Saturday. So pretty much enslaved people had all the rest of Saturday and Sunday to themselves. And so that's where we see a lot of things like barbecue and other things happening. And barbecue starts to get associated with church. Um, It was a way to attract the crowd. See, politicians and preachers figured out that a good way to bre- draw a crowd is to barbecue. Uh, so yeah, so we do see a lot of uh, situations where enslaved people were barbecuing for themselves. In fact, some of the most prominent slave rebellions of the 19th century were kind of planned over barbecue uh, to the point where there's actually some, you know, there, there was white newspapers arguing that black barbecue should be banned because of the potential to plan insurrections. We, we see more African-Americans barbecuing on their own terms, of course, after slavery. The, the most uh, kind of public forms of that would be church barbecues, again, building community, political barbecues. Uh, a lot of times African-Americans were trying to get their brethren to uh, get active and vote. And then emancipation barbecues, of which right now Juneteenth is probably the most popular one. But there were a whole patchwork of emancipation celebrations that exist in the early years after uh, slavery ends. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, folks. We have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day, and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So, what's the solution? Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, You will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code BITMAN. Hi, folks. A word from our friends at Made In. Did you know that most of the dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made-in, made-in pots and pans? The braised short ribs? Made-in, made-in. The Rohan duck? Made-in, made-in. The heritage pork chop? You got it. Made-in, made-in. Which isn't surprising. Made-in has been supplying top chefs and restaurants with high-end cookware for years. For the simple reason that made-in makes exactly what demanding chefs are looking for. Their carbon steel cookware, for example, combines the best of cast iron and stainless steel, gets super hot, and is rugged enough for grills or an open flame. Best of all, Maiden is sold online, so their professional-grade cookware is far more affordable than other iron brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes on menus all around the world have in common. They're Maiden, Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's MadeInCookware.com. Thanks. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. 
Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. You know, I always say there's really only a few ways to cook. You're applying heat to food. It's not that complicated. You cook it in water, you cook it in oil, you cook it in some other fat. You apply heat directly, that's grilling, or you apply heat indirectly, you could call that barbecuing or, you know, braising is also. So what makes it barbecue? It's not the same as grilling. I know that. So is it the sauce or is it the slow cooking or is it some combination I really believe it's slow cooking. I think that's the key point, right? Because barbecue becomes this inter- intermediary type of cooking between the very long, I think people would say cold smoking that Native Americans were doing for preservation purposes. And then the very quick grilling, um, at that time it was called carbonadoing uh, that Europeans were doing. So it emerges as kind of this middle type of cooking. So the low and slow appellation, I think is is a, it's a good baseline Uh, definition for barbecue. So cooking meat at a low temperature for a long period of time, you know, where you get into trouble. And I often tell people trying to define barbecue is like trying to catch a greased pig, because as soon as I narrow down the definition, I'm like, oh, but yeah, these people do that. And I don't, can, can, are you going to not say that's barbecue? So for instance, a lot of African-Americans I know, especially when cooking spare ribs, will cook hot, fast, then slow. So it's not completely low and slow and it's over direct heat, right? It's not indirect. And so what we find is that barbecue keeps getting expanded in its definition, because what we think of in Central Texas, that, that's really smoking, right? It's indirect cooking, because barbecue, seriously, for two centuries was cooking over that trench directly. And now we have another expansion of the definition of barbecue with all the scientific and you know chef-driven um, elements that are being added to it. I mean, you're okay with that. You're fine with sort of expanding the traditions or no? 
Uh, I'm fine. I mean, you know, I'm I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I have public statements where I draw a line and stuff. But no, I'm I'm fine. And you know, the other thing that's um to me that's really interesting right now is just the ways that people are adding vegetables or meat substitutes and finding ways to to barbecue those. And you know, the hardcore way, well, it's not barbecue if it's not meat. Um, but you know, I think some very interesting things are happening right now in the world of barbecue. Yeah, when we start to think of questions of sustainability and other things, I think we're going to have to entertain you know, some other options um, where we get that same smoke taste, but maybe not the way we had it before. That's where the greens come in, man. I'm telling you, the greens are the thing. The greens with smoked meat in them, that is really good. I remember being disappointed the first time I went to Lockhart because I was just like, this is just smoked meat. And then the second time I liked it because my expectations were different. But the first time I thought people say this is the best barbecue in the country. and and, and the one thing I want to highlight for your listeners is, you know, when we say Texas barbecue, I think people automatically gravitate to the central part of Texas. But there are other traditions um, in that state. I mean, if you go further south, Latino influence kind of barbacoa traditions, um, you know, cabeza, cabrito. Uh, but then East Texas, East Texas does not get enough love. Creole influence. I mean, some of the same meats, right, but different in, in performance and appearance. So. East Texas barbecue is going to be messier. You know, the brisket may, instead of these perfectly manicured slices, right, that are Instagrammable, um, it's going to be chopped up, heavily sauced. Um, you know, you're going to have ribs, you have the soul food sides, and you have a lot of Creole sides, like a, a lot of dirty rice and other things, and even boudin sausage show up in these East Texas joints. I was thinking about Cochinita Pibil, which is the the Yucatan thing of burying stuff in a pit. And... um I think that's indigenous. I mean, that's got to be pre-Columbian, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, they were using other animals besides pork, I guess. But uh, yeah. So, you know, one thing I've never had legit, you know, Pabil. Is, is it smoky when you taste it? It's not really because it's buried. It's kind of that wet, steamy thing. I guess there must be some smokiness, but there's a lot of chilies, sort of a mole kind of thing. I mean, I'm also thinking about, you know, an old-fashioned clam bake in New England that's got a lot in common also. It's not, I guess you could expand the definition as much as you wanted to. No, I think you're heading in the right direction. And if I had more time and resources, I really wanted to learn more about clam bakes because I think there's a parallel with barbecue um, because I, I think it's an invented tradition where people are saying, well, this is what Native Americans did, but I'm not so sure that they cooked exactly that way. So I think another that's another example of a hybrid type of cooking that gets a nostalgic aspect uh, applied to it. So I, I think there's a very I think there's something really interesting, um, and I'm glad you brought up clam bakes. I mean, I think in a way you're talking about sort of geographical cooking, like you cook what's there, and the clam bake is the because uh, the beaches are rocky, and then you put seaweed on top, and there's plenty of that, and you're cooking lobsters and clams and mussels and that kind of stuff, and it just makes total sense when you do it. I've done it a few times and I've actually done it in ways I'm proud of. Like I didn't cut that many corners. And I remember one time I organized about 10 people and made everybody do a different job, including like you're collecting rocks, you know, <laughs> but it's, re you really do feel like grounded in something that really predates the present. And that, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is getting in touch with, Whoever's culinary traditions they are, they sure predate the 20th century, the 21st century. They're not what we grew up cooking and eating. 
some of your favorites and some stuff that's in the book? Is there, are there, can you pick some things out to talk about? Sure. So what I did is I wrote chapters about different aspects of African-American barbecue culture. And I tried to find a couple of historical figures and present day figures that really evoke the themes. And so one thing is, you know, barbecue is so masculinized, right, in the way that it's presented. And in in African-American culture, Black women have been in the barbecue game from the earliest days. I mean, you mentioned a Black woman that, you know, used to cook at at the place you went to. Um, And so I found this story of this woman named Marie Jean, or Mary John, um, anglicized, uh, who was cooking barbecue in 1840s Arkansas. And there's a newspaper report of her superintending a barbecue. That's the term that they would use for a pit master today. Right. So, so dig that, man. you got this Black woman telling dudes what to do in Arkansas, enslaved woman. And so she ends up buying her freedom. And I, I don't know if it's from the barbecue, she, you know, money she made being hired out to barbecue, but she buys her freedom, runs a restaurant in Arkansas. When she dies in the 1850s, the white newspaper eulogizes her. Wow. Great story. Awesome story. Figures like her. Um, I like also talking about kind of my favorite barbecue joints and um, I did put my top 20 down because I knew I was going to get asked. Uh, so the end of the book is the top 20 um, joints that I found going across. And it's not, you know, it's not exhaustive because I didn't have enough resources to do every state and things like that, but it's a good list. Um, and then one thing I really enjoyed doing was just exploring this idea of a black barbecue aesthetic. I mean, in the world of barbecue, is there really something you can say, hey, this is what African-Americans do. And just in terms of current trends, the the fact that turkey is showing up in a lot of different places in African-American barbecue, turkey ribs, which are the shoulder blade cut in a certain way. So there's meat on around it uh, out of St. Louis. Uh, you've got people in eastern North Carolina chopping up turkey just and except for being lighter in color. You would have no idea it was different than the pork you normally get. Yeah, especially dark meat turkey is really like pork. Yeah. Pulled, uh, pulled, pulled turkey, you know, and turkey tips and turkey hot links in Southside Chicago. So that's really interesting stuff. So that's a current trend or that's, I mean, because turkey is indigenous to, to the United States or to indigenous to North America. So, but that's a new thing, the turkey barbecue. That's a new thing. I mean, in historical sources, I, de- I did see a stray reference here and there to barbecue turkey, but it, I de- got no impression that it was a major thing. But in African-American barbecue, it's a major thing. And that kind of tracks what happened in soul food, because in the 80s, there was this push for healthier soul food. So a lot of people switch from pork to turkey. And so I think barbecue is now catching up. So is there a black-white divide in barbecue, or is like the styles crossover and and it all kind of mushes together at this point? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I would say now that uh, the differences between white barbecue and, say, black barbecue is that black barbecue tastes better. But if you ask me to go on at length. <laughs> so here's the interesting thing. For 200 years, barbecue was just the same, regardless of who cooked it. And, and it was wedded with black labor, but it was essentially the same. I would say now that I do think there are racial differences. For African-Americans, ten, this is general tendencies. Meat is less butchered. So like our when we get spare ribs, it's going to have that rib tip attached. Going to be chopped messier. Sauce is really important. I mean, I've been to places where you got served your barbecue and it was an ocean of sauce with just little islands of meat poking through. Abundance of white bread, abundance of fries <laughs> uh, served in it. But um, I, I would say like ribs, chicken, and hot links. That tends to be kind of the the frequent trinity of black barbecue, regardless of where you are in region. Um, now with all of the uh, information that's available about barbecue, I'm starting to see a convergence where a lot of people are starting to cook barbecue the same way. 
And I have to say, you know, Texans are just very good cheerleaders for their culture. A lot of the new generation barbecue people are making barbecue in a Texan way, like a Central Texas kind of style. So I, I would argue that Central Texas is now the default barbecue aesthetic. Whereas before I would have argued it would maybe have been a, a hybrid of Kansas City and Memphis. But I just don't think that's the case any longer. The racial differences are kind of, you know, melting away. I want to go back to something I mentioned right at the beginning, comparing the barbecue thing to music and the sort of difference between bluegrass and blues, which have not mushed together. Although, of course, white people do blues and black people do bluegrass at this point, but they really are quite distinct. Is there worthwhile conversation, I guess? Oh, no, absolutely. I have that because I was just trying to explore, you know, what is different about the way African-Americans do barbecue versus other populations. And I think the emerging kind of white slash whatever the white barbecue aesthetic is, has been set as the default authentic barbecue. And people are making a ton of money doing that. And so what I'm finding is out of necessity, I see people trying to mimic that. So for instance, you know, brisket was not a thing you would find in a lot of black barbecue joints outside of Kansas City and Texas. And if you did find it, it was thinly sliced. It was more like roast beef. I'm now walking into joints in all kinds of places and they feel compelled to have brisket on the menu, even though they were somebody who did pork a lot. Why? Because people are coming in and asking for it. And if they don't see it, they turn around and leave. So, you know, as a business person, you got to make a decision. So I'm starting to see things like that. And then, you know, because people are being told this is what legit barbecue is over and over and over, to the extent that Black uh, aesthetics don't match up, people are like, that's not real barbecue. And I'm seeing this online. I mean, I, I, show, I post pictures of everywhere I eat. And when I go to a Black joint that has a lot of sauce, people will comment online, oh, that's a lot of sauce. That's not real barbecue. So, you know, the, the culture is changing. Something about that willingness of people to think they've become experts without delving into where stuff came from or allowing for the legitimacy of multiple experiences doesn't have to be what you grew up with or what somebody told you was the best in order for it to be good and legitimate and, you know, real. Right. Thank you. I mean, that's the vibe these days, though. People want to be experts. They want to have an opinion and express it. And I, I just don't know why there's not a sense of wonder. Like, hey, maybe I should explore other things. It's just good or maybe it's just different. And I don't know if that's a social media fueled thing or what. And one, if we can go back to music for a second, you know, one thing I have been thinking about, and I've been thinking about this mostly in blues, you know, I, I've read interviews, and this was more late 70s, 80s, well, you've got these blues legends saying, hey, I'm singing to mostly white audiences. Um, but, you know, barbecue has been really interesting because it's been interracial in terms of clientele for a long time. I mean, even back early 1900s, white people would go to the black part of town to get black barbecue. And I think that was because there was a conventional wisdom that the very best stuff is going to be made by an African-American. So you might as well just go over there and get that. And there's there are examples of black entrepreneurs having a white only barbecue joint and having their black customers come to a takeout window. During the 1960s, there were there were uh, you know civil rights workers picketing black restaurants because they had segregated dining practices. Okay, so favorite recipes from the book, or you don't have to pick your favorites, but ones you think you might like to talk about. Yeah, so one recipe is a burnt a pork belly burnt ends. And here's another example of me talking out of both sides of my mouth, because I do bellyache in the book about how burnt ends have been gentrified. Because it, the earliest form of burnt ends, they were just shards of grisly meat 
that usually barbecue purveyors threw away. But the genius of Arthur Bryant in Kansas City is like, no, I'm just going to put this in a bowl and put it on the counter and you can munch on it while you're waiting for your order. And now burnt ends are these perfect cubes that go beyond the shards, right? They're, I mean, they're getting into the brisket itself to create these things. And Texans have co-opted this. I noticed that people think burnt ends are from Texas now. No, they're not. They're from Kansas City. This idea that uh, burnt ends now are this varied thing, you know, so I've bought into it by having a pork belly burnt end uh, recipe, but I love it because it comes from this guy that I uh, wrote about named Old Arthur, who as a kid in slavery, he was in charge of basically running the fires of the plantation and he becomes a barbecue guy and he lives until he's 107 and uh, his his descendants are running a barbecue sauce company based on his recipes and so it's a recipe that they contributed and then another part of barbecue culture we get we get caught up in the meat and the side dishes but you know desserts are important and so i was really happy to include my mom's banana pudding recipe all right last question i think how's the senate thing going that's what i want to know well, my man, after being in politics for a while, I just figure it's not for me. <laughs> I'm about getting stuff done. And uh, that's not always the case in our politics today. And then the other thing is that the fundraising would be soul crushing. I mean, sitting there dialing for dollars when I want to be working on the problems of the people, man, that would just kill me. So I might go back into politics as somebody staffer. And that's frustrating, right? Because you can only do so much to the person you're you're helping. Ultimately, they are making the decision. But yeah, me as the candidate, I, I just don't think that those days are with me any longer. But you know, I'm kind of a politics junkie, so I might go back to it. And so you're doing are you doing your change work through the Council of Churches now or something else? Uh, yeah, through the Council of Churches. So um, that job is about getting churches together to uh, build relationship and do social justice work. And I think the faith community could be a strong ally for a lot of groups in that work. And then I'm also trying to figure out how to do it through food. One thing I'm thinking about lately is how to create a dining guide for difficult conversations. So if there's a challenge that you need that needs to be met in your community, your neighborhood or your office, whatever, how to have a four part dinner series to really engage people, because we have very few spaces left in our society to come together. And I think the table is one of those. And I think the table has the power to create a safe space to bring people together who have different in their views. Yeah, I think that's really smart. And and remember, it goes back to what you were talking about, enslaved people using barbecue as a way to have meetings to talk about rebellions or whatever. So there's legitimate history in that. So that does sort of bring together another way of bringing together the sort of food and social justice issues is just sort of using food as a means to get people together to talk about real issues. Yep. Terrific to have you. Thank you for your time and your wisdom. It was really a great conversation. Anything else you want to say, or should we just say ciao? Oh, we can say peace, brother. Um, but no, it was good to be with you. Uh, and thank you so much for inviting me. Well, peace, brother, and thanks for being here. See you again, I hope. Take care. I promised you a way to rig a smoker, and it's pretty easily done. There are a couple different techniques. Uh, this is assuming you have a gas grill. You can do this with a charcoal grill also, but a gas grill is a little easier to control the heat on. The recipe... Um, I read before, calls for a heat of 275 degrees. And in most gas grills, if you put one burner on low to medium, that's about the temperature that you'll get. You need a thermometer, obviously. And the way to get smoke in that gas grill, it's pretty easy. You can gather some twigs. You want hardwood and ideally fruit wood. You don't want pine or other coniferous wood. 
You can buy wood chips. You can actually take a small piece, big chunk of wood. I have some applewood branches that are cut into three or four inch chunks, and I just keep them by the side of my grill. Uh, if you're using wood chips, you'd want to smoke them, but if you're using fair-sized sticks or a piece of a, a big chunk of wood, you could just put that directly on the flame. If you're using chips, soak them and wrap them in some foil loosely so the smoke can get out. And just put that right over the flame. If you're using um, live wood, that's going to catch fire eventually, so you have to regulate the heat so that it doesn't build too high. But that's pretty easily done, and if you're using wood chips, they won't add a lot of heat to that. And um, any of those methods should give you an hour or so's worth of smoke if you have to add another piece or some more branches or whatever of wood to your fire. You can do that. But I've been doing that kind of thing on a gas grill for years, and it works really well. It's not the same as a smoker. It's not as intense smoke-wise, but you do get great smoky flavor out of that, and it couldn't be much easier. Okay, it's time for your questions and answers, and I'm going to handle these myself this week and take three, two from Samantha, because we like her, and one from Stephen. Hi, my name is Samantha Mueller, and I have a few questions. First, um, do you eat any junk food at all? And if yes, what does the anti-junk food guy indulge in? Um, and the second is, in my household, we're starting to experiment with a vegetarian diet, just trying to eat less meat in general. But we've noticed that the meat substitutes are highly processed and full of ingredients that I can't pronounce, which is usually a red flag. So what are your thoughts on the Impossible Burgers and Tofurky, and which is, you know, if faced with this choice of eating an Impossible Burger or a regular cow meat burger, what would you suggest? Thank you. So I don't want to get too philosophical in answering this question from Samantha, but I will say that we eat what's out there to be eaten. And a lot of that is junk food. More than half of the calories in the United States today are junk food. So yes, I eat junk food. I think almost everyone eats junk food. What do I eat? Well, I currently seem to have a weakness for licorice, and I've made the mistake of having some in the house, so I am eating licorice. I can't have potato chips in the house because I will eat them immediately, so I guess that, that means that I do eat potato chips. Ice cream, same thing. Uh, occasional fast food, but it's not really that much of a weakness of mine. A good old-fashioned hot dog, for sure. But the list goes on, as it does for so many people. I, I can't categorize all the junk food that I eat in a year. But, you know, it, it, we do many things that we are, in principle, against, and that's human nature in a way. Samantha's second question. My answer to that is, well, first of all, congratulations for eating a more plant-forward diet, as we all should. I don't like that choice. I don't, I'm assuming that a regular cow burger means a a burger from a regular cow. Yes, the new mock meats are highly processed food, and I personally steer away from them. That, they may get better, but right now, I'm not interested. But industrially produced meat doesn't interest me either. So um, if you can't get a real hamburger and your alternative is a fake hamburger, I guess I'd eat an apple. How's that? 
hey, this is Stephen, and I was wondering, are there any foods that you wouldn't eat as a child and that you eat now? Stephen asks, are there any foods you wouldn't eat as a child that you do eat now? Well, there are many foods that weren't available to me as a child. Octopus, for example, kohlrabi, celeriac, snap peas, brown rice. I mean, the list goes on and on. I think my palate expanded proportionately with the kinds of foods that were available to me. But the really the only thing that I didn't like when I was a kid and that I do like now is celery. And that did not change when I became an adult. It changed when I turned like 50. I suddenly found that celery was one of the most amazing, it's an aromatic vegetable, but one of the most amazing flavors in the world. And now I love it. I don't know why I didn't as a kid, but I do love it now. That's it for this week's listener questions. Thank you, Samantha and Stephen, for calling in. If you have a question about food, cooking, whatever, call us at 833-FOODPOD. That's 833-366-3763. And just leave us a message. But be sure to tell us how to get in touch with you, because in the next week or so, we're going to start taking your questions and answering them live. Talking with Adrian, you know, soul food scholar and all, made me think about ribs, not surprisingly. Ribs are a little more universal than many Americans might believe. I've I've had them everywhere, all over the world, in different forms. And I have to say, one of my favorite stories about eating ribs is because of the peculiarity or the unexpectedness of the situation. I mean, if you go south, if you go to Texas, you expect to eat ribs. If you go to Switzerland, maybe not so much. But I was in Switzerland once, almost 50 years ago, and a friend of mine, in the dark, it was, it was late fall, drove me up into the mountains Southern Switzerland, this was. And as I said, it was dark. We approached a farmhouse, um, a kind of farmhouse restaurant, went inside, sat down, everything was wood. You could hear pigs in the yard. I remember pigs squealing. And they built a fire. They built a fire while we were there. We waited quite a while. And then they started cooking ribs on the fire. And after an hour or whatever, they brought to the table the most amazing, smokiest, crisp, tender ribs, and the best French fries I ever had. Well, in memory, the best French fries I ever had. And again, the thing about that that was so cool was how unexpected it was. So take your joy where you find it, my friends, and we will talk to you next week. That's it for today. I'd like to thank Adrian Miller again for coming on the show. You can find his book, Black Smoke, wherever you shop for books. And you can find Adrian at Soul Food Scholar on Twitter or his website, adrianemiller.com. It's A-D-R-I-A-N-E-M-I-L-L-E-R.com. Thanks again to him. Folks, if you like today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. 
You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at bitmanproject.com or at markbitman.com. They all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. See you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 